Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, we're less than two weeks to election day. Most of the campaigns have flipped all their switches. They bought all their ad time. But now is the time when the people on the ground are going to make the difference between winning and losing in November. Guys, join the union.us. Millions of Americans have already voted. Millions more will before Election Day. Let's make sure we communicate to those people. Tell them what it means to be a pro-democracy voter, to not fall for the big lie, to do what's right for their community, their families, and their country. Go to jointheunion.us and be part of it. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Paul Kobach, Vice President of Narrative Strategies, a think-do tank of scholars and military professionals specializing in narrative warfare. Prior to Narrative Strategies, Paul had a distinguished career in the United States Special Operations and Counterterrorism Community as a U.S. Army Warrant Officer. He's the author of the book, Modern Day Minutemen and Women, or How to Save the 2020 Election, and the author of the online newsletter, Truth About Threats. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you kindly for having me. All right, so before I get into your background a little bit, what is narrative warfare? At the end of the day, all conflicts about influence, even when you're shooting at each other. If you're bombing somebody, you want them to submit. If you're using a nuclear weapon, you have to erase your enemies so that they're no longer a threat to you. If you're on the battlefield and you have civilians you're trying to protect from extremists, it's all about influencing the resiliency of the native population while at the same time influencing the bad guys to either give up, misunderstand what you're doing, or put themselves in a vulnerable position. So it's always about influence. The truth about influence is you can't understand it unless you actually understand what narrative is, not just the rhetorical tool that you here on the six o'clock news or in pretty much every article you read, there's more to it than just a storyline. I think that's an important thing because, Paul, I get asked a lot of questions about messaging. And messaging is, I don't know if it's exactly the same as narrative, but they live in the same neighborhood. Why do you need a narrative and, you know, in the service of what? So that's a great question. So narrative in its basic form, in its most essential form, is how human beings since we've walked upright, interpret all the stimuli they experience and create meaning between our ears so that we know what to do to protect ourselves, to get something to eat, to avoid danger. And 90% of what we do daily, that meaning map in our head makes those decisions for us. We don't even know it. It's all happening subconsciously. What narrative is, when somebody wants to actually think about a problem or think about a decision, especially if it's important or involves your safety, they depend on that filter that's built into their own identity. So it's really about the meaning of what you experience, hear, see, taste, or whatever, interpreted between your ears so you can make a decision on how you want to go with it. 
So that identity is what people are trying to trigger when they try to do influence. The problem is most people don't understand that you have to get to that identity or you have to create that identity. And if you either know how to do the analysis for that identity, or you can have the ability to shape an audience, then you can trigger predictable responses in an audience almost instantly with a word or two or a picture or a color, a number or some combination thereof. And that's what we've experienced here in the US. We've had created identity and it's become Pavlovian for American on the right and left to be triggered. Well, and it seems like with all of the academic, quantitative, qualitative work that must go into the things you're describing, that it seems like a guy like Donald Trump knows intuitively what to say to his people to get those triggers activated. So for narrative, in order to have narrative, the rhetorical tool, the, the strategic communications tool, you also have to have narrators. Just like any other profession, any other skill, some people have a natural sense of how to do it, how to tap into things. Now, Trump, in his lifetime, he's always known how to trigger predictably certain responses in very select audiences. How he reached the greater audiences, he had a lot of help with. I mean, the Cambridge Analytica fiasco, the Russian influence operations. Any number of the front groups that we see having rallies every weekend. Well, yeah, those are the Pavlovian dogs, the people that go to those rallies. They've been conditioned to respond to certain things, and it all revolves around him. It's kind of the way cults work also. Well, because that's the thing is that you think of narrative and you think of storytelling, conjuring up aspirations for some people, fear in others. But what you're talking about is that there's a lot more, is it psychology? Is it neurology that goes into this stuff? All the above plus some, anthropology, sociology, ethnography. What creates a narrative is based on every single thing that touches a person's identity and throughout their lifetime. So people share layers of identity, and that's how you come up with groups, tribes, so to speak. So what we're talking about right now is tribalization. So those identities have a lot of shared layers of identity. Paul, there was a, I think it was an NBC News survey out just the other day that, as we're recording this, that said that polarization's as bad as it's ever been. But let me ask you this, is that in these narrative sets, you know, a narrative appeals to one group, a separate narrative appeals to another. Is it necessarily that those, in the context of where we are today, that those narratives are always going to clash with one another? Sometimes they run counter to one another. Sometimes they run in parallel because neither group is talking to and or accepting the narrative from the other. Narratives don't always oppose each other. When you create a narrative strategy for whatever you're trying to influence and support of, that narrative is created to achieve a very specific effect if somebody knows how to do it. And right now, the narratives on opposing political divides are created to have a black and white opposition. So you're either absolutely in or you're absolutely out. That's how those narratives have been created. Why does it seem that, let's say, for example, the Republican Party, this narrative seems to take hold of more of its voters more strongly, even those who I would consider friends who maybe they're not totally bought in on it, but they're let's call them sympathizers or at least fellow travelers, right? They may not totally accept what they're hearing, but they're close enough where they reject, let's say, Democrats or quote unquote, the other side. I come out of a background of counterterrorism that was either deployed, doing tactical stuff, or when I was home, not deployed, 
creating programs to work against extremism. So what we have now, the current Republican Party is not a party. It's an extremist movement. And that came with Donald Trump because he became the narrator for an extremist narrative. So anything he says at this point, because that audience has had their identity shaped by professional influencers like Russia, Cambridge Analytica, and a variety of other advertising and campaign support, because they've shaped that identity, they will buy into anything he says. And the things he says are, by definition, extremists, not political. If this was just about politics, I wouldn't even be talking to y'all because it's a family tradition because in our family, we don't talk about politics. But I talk about, like in my blog, I talk about significant and existential national security threats, that we have an extremist movement impersonating a political party right now. That's an insider threat on a magnificent scale. I mean, I grew up in the Republican Party in the 80s and 90s, worked in the Republican Party up through officially, let's say 2007, probably my last big Republican campaign. And you remember that, you know, Senator McCain that year is running, you know, wait, he's running against Barack Obama. You know, we all remember that rally in September when the woman stands up and says, he's a Muslim, he's a foreigner. And he says, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. He is an American. He is a family man. He's a good man. That was one of the highlights of my life, that moment. Tell me why. Because it spoke to everything about my identity. I'm a registered Republican, but I registered based on the principles I grew up on in the rural Midwest. And that is an Eisenhower Republican, which today, what's that make me? Moderate Democrat or untouchable to either side, somewhere around there. Because the principles that Eisenhower put forward in his platform spoke to pragmatism, common sense, planning, strategy, knowing what you need to do and what you need to do to achieve it. All these little ideological games were not played, all the, what they call culture wars today. And even up through 2007, it was an inflection point for the party, adding Sarah Palin to the ballot. And I think that put off a lot of people that consider themselves principal conservatives. There are no principles left. If you look at the talking points, I'm just doing some writing for my blog about what that looks like for my own Texas House District candidate, Tony Gonzalez. It's a guy that claims to be in the, from the same counterterrorism task force that I spent most of my career in and wouldn't even say the word Russia or criticize Putin until he got the thumbs up laid into the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's all ideological BS. It's straight up culture wars, fake patriotism. Well, there's a lot of that going on, isn't there? Yeah. And it doesn't just inhabit the right. I mean, there's weirdness on the left too. The difference on the left is, yes, they have their extremists. There's no question about it. But the party mechanism corrals them and keeps them in check. Nothing the, the progressive left does really gets out of committee. Now, the Trump wing of today's Republican Party controls the party. So even if a principled conservative would vote for another principled conservative, that vote would be better spent on the other side because that vote is supporting extremism. The current Republican Party is extremist. We try and communicate to a narrow band of Republicans, the types of which you're talking about. But, you know, we have this idea. We didn't call it this in 2020, but in a couple of weeks away from Election Day here, which was, you know, if you're in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, those are our five big target states. If you're a Republican and you know better and you can't stand these people, like if you can get all the way across the line to Josh Shapiro, do it. Flip that vote. If you can't, skip it altogether. Flip it or skip it. 
because everything I hear from Republicans and Democrats is, I can't stand my own party, don't want anything to do with theirs. But you see that, you know, from us, and maybe it's because me and, you know, Rick and Stu and everybody else have, you know, traveled our own journey on this. And maybe because we spent so long within the Republican apparatus, like we see how far it's moved. I like to say the Overton window is not even in the same building anymore. So how do you communicate to a person that, you know, like you, like me, came up with a narrative? You know, we sometimes would call it political socialization, where for so many of us, right, we voted straight ticket Republican. Family was Republican. Everybody was Republican, right? Year in and year out. But now, often, I think too often, we use the word conservative to describe them. They're not conservatives. They're radicals. They're nihilists. They're reactionaries, but they're not conservative. Correct. Just like a bully on a schoolyard, right now the extremists beat down anybody with a voice. The only thing that will save the Republican Party right now is those with principles who I don't believe, they may be a minority, but it's not a big minority. I think it's roughly equivalent to the crazies. And it's going to take leadership in the Republican Party to get back to principles and stop using the word conservative. If people that are truly principled conservatives say, I refuse to support an extremist movement, but I will support principled conservatives, that's the difference. But right now, if we go out and vote tomorrow, any Republican vote will be a vote for an extremist party because nobody will stand up to them. Look how many members of Congress. Look at the January 6th committee alone. Kinzinger and Cheney, two people stood up, two people, and they're both out. It might be only David Valadeo from California of the 10 Republicans that voted to impeach Trump a second time, Valadeo might be the only one that goes back to Congress in January. Right, because the bullies are cowards. The more people that stand up and beat them down, it actually becomes addictive for other people. If somebody stands up and leads on this, people will follow. But the problem is there's nobody left to lead. It's like you just said, there's one person out of 10 left standing. But let me ask you that, because this stuff that we're talking about in the, in the context of American politics doesn't occur in a vacuum. Now, I'm not being both sides here. I'm saying there are two sides, one that is an extremist movement and one that is highly imperfect, but it's still pro-democracy. But it feels like, and I have to deal with this, Paul, a lot, which is you go and you say, look, when you're a young Republican operative, it's just win, baby. That's the deal. Just win. And it seems, Paul, it's very difficult to your point about standing up and punching the bully. It's oftentimes more difficult than I would believe and I would like to see to find enough Democrats who are willing to stand up and punch bullies, if that makes sense. And I don't know if that's a psychological difference, if that's a political sociology difference, if that's even a word, what the issue is, right? Maybe they're good people and I'm not. I don't know. Because I think they want to win and they want to win for the right reasons, but they also want to win the right way. And it's like if they don't have that particular matrix that is a little bit bare knuckle, is a little bit ruthless, if you're up against people who will fight dirty without compunction, will lie about everything, it's tough to say, well, I'll stand up here you know, on the high ground while the trolls roll around beneath me, destroying everything in their path. Well, you're spot on, but I don't think it's really up to the Democrats to do this. First of all, they have no voice with any Republican for the most part, because the powers that be have created a black and white situation where it's this tribe versus this tribe, and it's a lethal threat to ever concede anything. We can't live in a zero-sum game. It just doesn't work. But it takes leaders to be narrators to make that come back together. When you ask me what 
I loved about John McCain's moment. It was that he, with his actions, the tone of his voice, the words in the setting, he demonstrated what American values were. It was the precise, beautiful moment. And I think that might be a valuable, iconic replay for the nation. So let's talk about, as we're recording this, we're about two weeks from Election Day. You know, if you had read the news headlines two, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, Democrats have momentum. The Dobbs decision is going to carry people over. President Biden's talking about the necessity to protect and preserve American democracy. Now, you know, the conventional wisdom is folks are worried about inflation. Folks are worried about crime. Obviously, Republicans are very good at messaging on both of those things. You know, who's going to win? What's it going to mean? In the binary choices that Americans have to make in American politics, in electoral politics for the most part, you talked about those folks in the untouchable middle. Are they that easily swayed in four to six weeks between, you know, I'm worried about the foundational nature of the country to I'm worried about crime in my neighborhood and, you know, the price of gas or food, which all of those things are real issues. But the way that Republicans frame them are inherently disingenuous because, as I've said, it's October, it's an even year, Republicans are scaring the white people. So tell me a little bit about how you see a shift like that. Is that a shift in narrative? Is that a shift in momentum? What, what do you think it is as we head toward Election Day? Well, right now, it's actually looking worse than it did for the left right now, for the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party cannot get out of their own way. If they don't have a charismatic leader, they're done. Why is that? I mean. Look, charismatic leaders always tend to unify, but it seems like the narrator they'll accept most is often a president, but it has to be a president that they want to be their narrator. You know, whether or not that was Bill Clinton in the 90s, Barack Obama in 2009 to 2017. And now you've got President Biden, who, by all accounts, from a policy perspective, from a you know, legislative perspective, has gotten a lot done, but they're like, eh, really not my guy. On the right, since the second Reagan term, all you've heard was, if we have to have a Democratic president, all we want is a moderate Democrat. Now they've had two. And the more moderate, the more they beat them up. The middle requires both the left and the right principled folks to stand up and lead and explain things, not in a policy. Hillary Clinton went out and bored everybody with policy talks. It didn't work. That's what the Democrats do. It touched somebody's emotions especially fear, and you can motivate them as a narrator. Good narrators, like I would consider President Obama a terrific narrator. He had the ability to reach down and even take complicated stuff. He had the ability to engage regular working people in the nation. And right now, if you don't have somebody that's engaging enough to have 51% of the narrative environment, then you're not going to get anybody to listen. And so the middle will stay the middle, and they'll probably default to their political identity. Principal Republicans and principal Democrats need to stand up and say, I've had enough. And that way you reclaim the traditional American values that everybody used to be able to agree on. So how do you look forward to 2024? Because we don't know what's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks. I mean, we've already seen you know, people in fatigues and battle rattle and weapons sitting you know, in Maricopa County, Arizona, outside ballot drop boxes, a bunch of Republican candidates who have consistently said not only 2020 was stolen, but if they lost too, that it was because it was a rigged system and it was stolen from them. How do you see all this as we project forward, 
not two weeks, but two years and two weeks? It depends if both sides' leadership are willing to come together and say, let's argue like real Americans over the issues instead of these culture wars. 60% of America, according to 538, will have an election denier on their ballot. That should keep you from being part of the process. If you can't settle on reality, you have no business running for office. What they typically do on the right, if they have principle, is leave the party or to go off and do something else. If they don't stand and fight for the party, they're the only ones that can, that can actually change things. If you don't get them to stand up and say, we want to be Republicans again and not extremists, please follow me and let's put the party back on track. And since fear works in the existing party, say, we will never have a party again if you don't follow and reestablish your principle conservatism. What do you think about Donald Trump as a national security risk or a risk to the country should he run and win again in 2024? Since late 2014, and especially when I took off my uniform and retired in 2015, I got on LinkedIn and I immediately fell into a battle with Russian trolls with some other like-minded people. And I recognized all the signs of this influence campaign to support Donald Trump. You know, Trump has been so involved and it's all in the reporting. It's all there, but nobody wants to talk about it. This, if you read the 966 pages of Volume 5 of the SSCI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Report, it details in damning eloquence all the collective conspiratorial efforts in conjunction with Russian intelligence. If you look at the conspiracy theories coming out of Russia today about Ukraine, if it sounds familiar, it's because it is, because it's precisely the way they taught Trump to handle his influence efforts in the U.S. If you look at Hamilton 2.0, it's part of the German Marshall Fund, you can go and track to the URL, to the hashtag, the counts, and how Russians still to this day are amplifying the party on the right. Tucker Carlson is literally a verbatim spokesperson for the Kremlin, and yet Fox still holds the reins. There's a reason that Britain kicked Fox out. It's because of this kind of stuff. And Trump will not become a viable candidate again unless the Republican Party takes this election. If they take this election, they are the enabling arm for Donald Trump to restart his effort to sell out America to pay off all his Russian mafia debts. Those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, I am so passionately furious people in responsible positions even allowed them out of the White House. That material, I have zero doubt, and I have a lot of insights behind the scenes that some of that material has already been compromised or offered for sale. So is he a threat? He's the ultimate threat, not just to us, but to our allies. Donald Trump has sold out the U.S., and everybody that supports him at this point is enabling that, in my eyes, at least morally complicit. Well, listen, you're not going to get any argument from me on that. And listen, I hope that as we get past this election and towards the next one, you'll come back and see us. But before we let you go, where can our listeners find your work and find you online? Well, Narrative Strategies, we have our own website, which is fantastic. and has a ton of information on very readable information. We try to make it accessible to non-academics and non-military professionals. And that's NarrativeStrategies.com. And of course, my substat is TAT the bright red icon and truth about threats. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram, Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. 
Paul, I want to thank you for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.